Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Wynan Beer, who is a South African living in England now, and he's written a very interesting book called From Logos to Bios, which, um, well, if you see these little blue markers in my, in my book here, I bookmarked a lot of things. And it is a very interesting stir fry of Greek thinking. And it turns out the Greeks had a lot of very valuable ideas, which he explores in this book, but combines it with some other streams of evolutionary thinking convergence orthogenesis, nomogenesis, and we'll get to all these words. They're not as exotic as they might sound. And uh, with a healthy sprinkling of some thinking by a famous guy named D.R.C. Thompson, who had a very geometrical view of nature. And so I think we're going to have a wonderful conversation. So welcome. Thank you for talking to me today. Thank you very much. Very, I look forward to it. So, this is a lot of work, okay? This is not a trivial undertaking. Uh, what motivated you to go so deep? Like, how far back does the story go? What really happened here? I've been interested in organic evolution since my school days, although at that point it was probably more out of rebellion against the Christian teaching on creation than any other reason. Uh, huh. The proper exploration, exploration of the theory only came much, much later. So in the book, I've tried to do two things to uh, use my love for the classical Greek thinking or Hellenic uh, philosophy um, and then to integrate it as far as possible with thought on evolution, both the modern theory from Darwin onwards and uh, more traditional views of evolution based on metaphysical understanding. Well, there's a lot to be said about this. Um, I, I certainly knew that the Greeks had had some pretty sophisticated ideas about causation and geometry and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't really realize the depth of it until I read the first few chapters of your book. Can, can you give people a sense of what the Greeks really contributed to this conversation? Because I'm not sure that this is obvious to most people that the Greeks were anywhere near as sophisticated as they were. I think the Greeks managed to combine a profound metaphysical understanding. In other words, uh, of the, shall we say, the invisible and intangible, intangible worlds above us and around us uh, with a keen observation of the natural world or the physical world. And it was Aristotle especially we managed to integrate those two uh, quite efficiently in works like uh, the physics and the metaphysics and on the heavens and on the soul. Uh, although one has to keep in mind that he studied for 20 years with Plato. So we probably obtained much of his metaphysical understanding from Plato. Plato, of course, despite his undeniable intellectual brilliance, um, turned both on earlier insights, which he obtained from Pythagoras and Heraclitus and Parmenides, especially. 
so they had a long-standing, centuries-old tradition of metaphysical thinking, which Aristotle then applied to observations of the physical world, including, very importantly, the living kingdoms. And that's why in his works like the history of animals, generation of animals, parts of animals, and so forth, uh, through those writings, Aristotle laid the foundations for the study of biology in the Western world. And then uh, the Neoplatonists further expanded that later on, although they, they laid more emphasis on the metaphysical side uh, than the physical side, one could say. Maybe, maybe we could start by just pointing out that almost everybody, I'm sure, who's listening to this took high school geometry and, you know, all the proofs about triangles and lines and circles and everything. And, you know, that's very rigorous logic. If you read Euclid, he was um, just exquisitely precise about his language and he went, was trying to prove everything that he could. And a lot of people don't realize that even mathematics is metaphysical. Like if you say, um, oh, the only real thing in the world is, is matter and energy and things that you can touch, you immediately start running into problems when you say things like, okay, well, so does the number seven exist? And if somebody says no, it's like, well, you know, you sure have an awful lot of sevens in your computer and you seem to use the number seven a lot in your daily life. So if it doesn't exist, like, what do you actually mean? You're like, well, it doesn't exist. It's, it's, you can't touch it. You can't taste it. You can't feel it, but it's logic. It's like, well, yes, exactly. Right. We have things called the laws of logic and even the laws of logic are metaphysical. Right. So the Greeks got this, they understood. And so they didn't have any hesitation about pushing that out even farther. So can you help us understand um, what, what forms of thinking uh, are in Aristotle and Plato and these guys that 2,500 years later, we're actually still finding really useful. I would say uh, probably the first one who made a lasting contribution was um, the father of mathematics in the Western world. Most of us would be familiar with his famous uh, theorem concerning the size of the square on the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle and so forth. But in reality, that only represents a tiny fraction of his, of his contribution. Um, he and his followers uh, discovered uh, that musical intervals can be expressed in mathematical terms, such as the, oct the octave and the fifth and the third and so on. And they, um, for example, they also discovered that if you take 10 pebbles and you arrange it in a, a triangle on the ground, then from top to bottom, you will have one pebble, two pebbles, three pebbles, and four pebbles. And that gives you also a precise equilateral triangle. And so the number 10 bec uh, became a, a, a number of mystical significance to them called Decad. And they continued building on those insights, uh, expanding it further and further through mathematical reasoning. Uh, then approximately the same time we and he was the one who introduced the concept of the logos or logos into Western thought, which has been, um, again, of lasting importance in both philosophy and theology. Uh, the logos being something which is common in all of physical reality, which indwells it. And it also regulates the conflict between opposites. For example, uh, winter and summer, day and night, uh, male and female, and so forth. And it is through the interaction between those opposites that reality becomes established. Uh, Parmenides was also quite important with his teaching on, on being as something eternal, unchanging, uh, stable, permanent, and so on. 
Uh, on the other hand, Heraclitus emphasized the dynamic nature of reality, that everything that we can see and touch is in a state of flux. Nothing is permanent about it. Uh, the only constant is change, one could state it in that way. And what Plato then did was to combine all those insights by saying that what Heraclitus said about uh, dynamic changing reality does apply to this world that we live in, which Plato calls the sensible world, because we can approach it through our physical senses, touch, uh, hearing, sight, and so forth. Whereas what Parmenides taught about the eternal, unchanging world of being applies to the higher, intelligible world, which is for Plato the realm of the eternal forms. And everything in this sensible world in which we live obtains its existence through participation in that higher, uh, invisible world, the intelligible world. And in one of his dialogues, the Timaeus, uh, Plato describes how the divine intellect, which he calls the, craft, uh, the demiurge, which means divine craftsman, uh, fashioned this world, the physical world in which we live, by first implanting intelligence into soul and then soul into matter. So that uh, whatever we see is actually a compound of those things. So it is the materialists who say that we are living in a material world only uh, are already talking nonsense from the outset. Because this material world isn't really only material. It's already a combination of matter and soul. Because unformed matter needs soul for its formation. So it is already a, a psychohelic, one could say, if one goes back to the Greek terms, a combination, the so-called material world in which we live. A materialist is going to say soul. What are you talking about soul? We haven't measured any souls. There aren't any souls. I think you seem to have a very specific meaning of that term uh, and a justification for why you need to use that term. Uh, to the Greeks, soul was equivalent with life because the Greek word psyche means precisely soul and life. In other words, nothing can live uh, if it's not indwelled by soul. Uh, but there are different levels of soul, as Aristotle explained. For example, there's the vegetative level, which is found in plants. Uh, there's the uh, uh, sensitive level, which is found in animals also. And then there's the rational level, which is found in humans also, building in each case on the previous levels as well. But to some extent, uh, soul is even found in inanimate objects, such as rocks or water or clouds and so forth. Uh, not in the extent of making them uh, living, but in the extent of providing them with, with uh, being and also with intelligibility, because uh, precisely on account of soul obtaining its own reality from a higher level, which is the divine intellect, as uh, Plotinus later explained in the Aeneas. So on the, on the one hand, there's the argument of uh, soul being connected with uh, life, if one has to uh, uh, debate it with a materialist. On the other hand, there's the fact that metaphysical realities, including the ones that you have just referred to, such as uh, mathematics and logic, and to which I would add certain kinds of music, um, are by definition uh, accessible through the soul, of which the, our rational mind is the highest level. So how close is the Greek idea of soul, how close is that to the idea of consciousness or self-awareness? It is intimately linked to it, um, but in the sense that it receives the soul as such, receives its uh, being from the divine intellect, which Anaxagoras uh, and other thinkers after him called uh, the nous in OUS, from which comes, of course, words like noetic and uh, the noosphere of Taya de Chardin and so forth. Um, so, uh, is, uh, uh, soul is the link, therefore, between uh, the material uh, reality and the higher intellectual reality. I want to connect this to biology a little later, but first I'd like to get a What's the story of you actually becoming formally interested 
in evolution as a subject. Like, what motivated you? What was the question on your mind? What were you trying to get to the bottom of would cause you to, you know, not not just, uh, you know, in rebellion against creationists or something like that, but clearly you you went deeper at some point. What happened? Approximately, I would say perhaps 10 to 12 years ago, after I completed my master's degree, which was on the philosophy of uh, Eriogena, John Scottus Eriogena, the great Irish philosopher and theologian of the Middle Ages, um, I was uh, searching for a, a field or a subject in which I could do doctoral research. At that time, the only kind of evolutionary thought that I was familiar with was Darwinism. So like most people, I equated Darwinism with evolution. I was unaware of any other uh, alternatives uh, to Darwinism uh, because they have pretty much ensured that they enjoy monopoly over uh, evolutionary thinking through the media and through the academic world, the academic uh, establishment, I would say. Um, and then when I discovered that there are, in fact, alternative approaches, such as evolution according to natural law or nomogenesis, based on the immensely important work of Lev Berg, a Russian scientist of the early 20th century, and also directed evolution or orthogenesis, based also on scientific work from the late 19th century onwards, uh, I was excited. I was almost revelatory to see that it is, in fact, uh, possible to approach evolution in a non-materialist, non-mechanistic fashion, which in turn opens the door for a metaphysical understanding of evolution, because which is, of course, precisely denied by the Darwinian tradition, uh, since they only admit material and mechanical factors, nothing else. So why did you care about this so much? Was there a personal crisis in your life? Was there a nagging doubt? I mean, what, what drove you? Initially, when I started doing research, uh, as I said, I was only familiar with Darwinism as a, an evolutionary theory, or neo-Darwinism in any of its permutations. Um, so I sought to, um, to try and show that it is not incompatible with a Christian teaching on divine creation, uh, if it's, of, of course, not understood in a literal, literalist uh, manner, uh, as the literal creationists would do, for example. Um, and the Greek philosophers would have provided the philosophical foundation for such a project, for such a research project. But the more I, the, the deeper I climbed into the Greeks, the more I realized that they are already providing me with a, a, a comprehensive frame of reference within which I could then explore evolutionary thought. And one of the, the keys uh, that uh, took me further then from that uh, was discovering the traditional understanding of evolution, as explained by thinkers like Ananda Kumaraswamy, for example, according to which evolution is precisely what the name says in Latin evolvere, uh, the unfolding. In other words, the unfolding of inherent possibilities. In other words, life form A can only evolve into life form B, if the potential for B was already present in A. So, um, how much of this was connected to your ideas about faith and religion? I, before we got on, you said you went on a rather long exploration of all kinds of uh, ways of thinking. Can you tell me more about that journey that you went on? Um. I was fairly young in my early 20s when I uh, moved away from uh, Protestant Christianity altogether uh, through reading the so-called existentialist philosophers and especially Friedrich Nietzsche. And I discovered why Nietzsche called himself the philosopher with a hammer. 
because one tends to be uh, affected by him one way or another if you uh, if you start taking him seriously. And then, interestingly, I still uh, enjoy reading him, although from a rather different perspective nowadays, of course. I do too. Uh, yes, because he forces one to think and to reconsider one's opinions, um, and uh, uh, to be as honest as possible with oneself. I think because the, the concept of honesty was extremely important to him. So that took me away from uh, Protestantism, which at the time I equated with, with Christianity. I was completely unfamiliar with either Catholicism or with Orthodoxy. Um, so for many years, I was uh, a non-Christian, looked into a bit of neo-paganism, that kind of thing. And eventually through studies, uh, ongoing studies at the University of South Africa, uh, I read, went a little deeper into uh, some of the Eastern religions, especially Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, the latter more so. Um, I tried to live according to the Noble Eightfold Path and so forth. Uh, but approximately 20 years ago, I realized that I had reached a, a spiritual cul-de-sac. After several years of dabbling with so-called New Age mysticism, trying to find the inner God, as they encourage people to do, I realized that I was still just as far away from God as I had been at the beginning of this whole process. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that it is impossible for us to save ourselves, as the New Age movement encourages people to do that we need help from the outside, which is precisely where Christ comes in. So I returned to Christianity via a, a, quite a long detour, in which I must have caused my very religious father lots of heartache. One of the reasons why I dedicated the book to my parents. <laughs> oh. Um, and uh, then through a confluence of circumstances, I uh, uh, discovered about orthodoxy, which of course up to that point, I'd been completely unfamiliar with uh, even of its very existence. And the more I climbed into his theology and its music, being a great music lover, uh, the more it grasped me and convinced me that it is the path that I should follow. So that is really fascinating. Um, about 15 years ago, I went to visit a friend in Washington, D.C. His name is Peter. And Peter had converted from evangelical Christian to Orthodox and he had become a part of an Orthodox faith family. And it was this radical change in his thinking. And we sat up three nights in a row, I think, and like just talked and talked until the wee hours of the morning. And um, it was really fascinating. I, at the time, I didn't hardly know anything about Orthodoxy myself. It's very different from American evangelical Christianity in many ways. Um, and, uh, and I was just, the thing that drove him to it was that he was part of some denomination and they wanted to ordain him. And, um, and he said, well, what does that actually mean? Hmm. Like, is it just a piece of paper? And he dug and he dug and he figured out, yeah, you know, with these guys, it's pretty much just a piece of paper. Like some office just kind of came up with us. And he's like, no, I, I think, um, I think I need some more solid grounding than this. What he found with the, with the Orthodox strand was that, you know, if, if he, if he became a part of this community, he was under a priest or a, like a, a fatherly person who, uh, essentially thought of them as a member of his extended family and that this person had been mentored by someone who had been mentored by someone and they could trace this like literally 
all the way back to Peter. And they knew the names of every single person. He's like, okay, if I'm going to get ordained, I'm going to get ordained into that because like there's some actual authority there. And so it was, it was quite the fascinating conversation. And he, and he pointed out to me, he, he says, he, he made this argument. He said, he said, the Orthodox church is the original mothership. And I said, okay, I thought the Catholic church was, he goes, no, you know, they split in 1052 AD and the Catholic had two cities and the Orthodox had five. And, and he, and he says, so, you know, really the Orthodox is the original mothership. I'm like, wow. Okay. That's pretty interesting. And he says, and see what's happened is he says the Protestant reformation happened. And now um, schism is in the Protestant DNA. So every time people have a disagreement, they split off and they make second Baptist church. And then some of those people disagree and they split off and they make third Baptist church. And then they have fourth Baptist church. And like, you know, if you, if there's cities in Michigan where you'll find like, you know, fifth reformed church, you know, and, 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 and Peter said, that's not how it's supposed to work. And, and so I was always intrigued by that ever since. And, and so, um, well, can you, um, can you explain maybe a few things that this resolved for you that the, um, the Calvinism that you grew up in in South Africa wasn't able to address? Uh, yes, one of the very first encounters I had when I started reading Orthodox theology was a statement that clarified something I always had a problem with, uh, namely, how is it possible for our Lord Jesus Christ to be born from a virgin? Because it doesn't make sense in, in natural terms. And uh, then I read a statement by a theologian who said that the Son of God was born from the father without a mother outside of time. And he was born from a mother without a father within time. And suddenly I saw the balance. It was a cosmic equation established. Outside mm. of time, within time, mother, father. I suddenly understood why it had to be that way. To balance that equation, one could almost say. Uh, another thing that has always impressed me is the deep mixture of the rational and the mystical in orthodoxy. Uh, there are some things that appear completely crazy. For example, the phenomenon of, of fools for Christ, uh, which is popular in both the Greek and the Russian uh, traditions, um, which doesn't make sense in, in rational terms. But in mystical terms, it does. Because those people have led countless people, unbelievers, to faith in Christ and things like that. So on the one hand, uh, Orthodox churches have had intellectual giants like St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Maximus the Confessor, the author of the Dionysius works, uh, St. John of Damascus and Gregory Palamas and more recent theologians, uh, especially uh, in the Russian church. Uh, on the other hand, they have always insisted that reason can only take us so far. Uh, there are realities beyond reason, say, subsumed under the generic name of the mystical. Uh, so there is always that balance of the rational with the mystical. Uh, and also the, the, in some other traditions, of course, uh, 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 there's a complete rejection of the rational. Uh, in, faith of, uh, in favor of uh, faith alone, or so it is claimed. And that, again, is also wrong, because reason is a, is a God-given gift that we have received. That, that is something I've absolutely never doubted, and that Plato and his uh, successor, uh, successors have reinforced to me. It's something to be grateful for. And therefore, uh, also, that's also the reason why 
Christians should never fear the natural sciences or be afraid of it, or whatever outcomes might come of it, um, while keeping in mind at the same time that all the findings of the natural sciences are provisional. Because in 100 to 200 years' time, another finding might completely overrule this finding again, as has happened in biology, astronomy, geology, chemistry, physics, and so forth. And will continue yes. to happen, I believe. Well, you know, I, I think that it's really impossible to practice science without an entire set of metaphysical constructs. Mm. There's a somewhat famous editorial in the New York Times by Paul Davies. It's a famous physicist who's a friend of mine. And it basically said, hey, you know, all of you science versus faith guys that are duking it out. Hey, like, come on, like, take a chill pill. He said, look, science rests on all kinds of beliefs and things that you can't prove. Like, you can't prove that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. You can't prove that the laws of physics are the same everywhere all the time. Mm. That's merely a metaphysical assertion. It's been helpful. And let's not forget that these, these assumptions on which science rests were originally formulated by theologians in the Middle Ages. So, like, don't tell me about I got my science and you've got your faith. He goes, uh, science rest as much as uh, on faith as anything. It's just, uh, uh, it's a faith that takes, it takes a different flavor or a different character than religious faith. But in, at least in some ways, it's exactly the same. So we come, we come to this question about evolution and what you find is, you know, well, if you, if you have any respect for the Pythagorean theorem or Euclid's geometry or the mathematics of the Greeks, you also have to appreciate that it came from their apprehension of a metaphysical world. In other words, rules and concepts, geometric forms, you know, like the word platonic refers to the idea that there is a, there is an ideal like whenever you see a wheel, like a tire, that there's an ideal conception of a circle behind it. And that that perfect circle is more perfect than the tire. This is, so this is, this is what Greek metaphysics is all about. And what you, what you discovered was that when you looked at non-materialistic interpretations of evolution uh, by some of these various authors, that, a, the authors had tremendous empirical support for their models, and B, it dovetailed very nicely with what the Greeks had been talking about 2,500 years ago. Is that, do I have that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. And one should also keep in mind that Platonic tradition, uh, including Pythagoras uh, slightly before uh, Plato, Plato, of course, went to study with the Pythagoreans in, in southern Italy, where he undoubtedly obtained his, his firm geometric grounding of his cosmology, that it is thoroughly uh, theistic. Thoroughly what? A theistic. Uh, belief in God, faith in God, mm. love of God, respect of God. Now, naturally, one could say that the conception of God would be somewhat different from, say, the Christian conception, which is sure. that of the, uh, the Trinitarian God, and which, uh, of course, I accept. But I have also no problem in accepting that this was part of the preparation uh, for the Christian understanding of God. And uh, Plato, in all his dialogues, um, emphasized the importance of uh, praying to God, of fearing God, of following the laws and the commandments of God. 
so that makes him pretty much a, a precursor, I would say, to the, to the New Testament and to the, the foundation of the church, uh, which is another one of their lastingly important contributions, I would say. Well, I think it's really hard to understand Christianity unless you understand that it is a, it is a collision of Jewish thought, Greek thought, and Roman law. And that the New Testament is mostly written in Greek. And, uh, you know, St. John says, in the beginning was the Logos, Mm. right? Which, why don't you talk about this Greek idea of Logos? How is it, because we have that word now, and the Christians are all over it. What did that word mean in ancient Greece that might be a little bit different or the same? Like, can you flesh that out? Um, it had several meanings in uh, classical Greek. Uh, most importantly, uh, seemed to be the meaning of uh, the spoken word and also the reason behind the spoken word, uh, so that the two can't really be separated. And one could reason that the reason comes first and then the spoken word, in the case of rational uh, speech, that is. Um, so that connection is extremely important of the word with the reason uh, and with, together with reason another. English term for it would be a proportion, uh, reason and proportion, of course, going together. Uh, again, very important in uh, Western philosophy and, of course, in everything else, in, in architecture. <laughs> one, can't, one can't remove reason and proportion from, from architecture or engineering, as I'm sure you would right. agree as a professional engineer. All of that goes back to Logos again. And then there's another mystical meaning for, uh, uh, it is also um, uh, related to the Greek word uh, legin, to speak. So one could say that the Logos is the creative word through which God speaks the universe, through which God creates the, the, the cosmos and sets it in order uh, and brings uh, harmony and uh, transform uh, chaos into cosmos, which is what creation entails, I believe. Uh, it's also interesting, um, a slightly divergent point, but I think showing how relevant this concept of the Logos is that uh, uh, it is viewed as the equivalent of the Chinese concept of uh, Tao, uh, or Tao, as the Chinese call it, I think, uh, going back to the uh, philosophy of uh, Lao Tzu and Zhuang Tzu and those guys of the pre-Christian era. And that's why in the Chinese translations of the Bible, uh, the prologue of the Gospel of St. John uh, commences with, in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God, and the Tao was God. So that shows that uh, even far afield, uh, there was uh, similar conceptions as to uh, what this concept of the Logos means. Okay, so you knew all this, and then you dive into evolution. What was going on in the world that made you feel like, oh, I've really got to get to the bottom of this evolution thing? I think I I dove into both areas at the same time. Uh, Mm. The evolutionary diving and the philosophical diving occurred pretty much in tandem, Uh, the one serving to reinforce the other one. I was surprised myself eventually when I saw how, how relevant a classical uh, philosophy could be to modern scientific thinking. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Well, it turns out, didn't you say in your book that Aristotle was the first person to come up with a, a form of a tree of life or something, something to that effect? First, he was the first person to do some sort of, some kind of classification of... Uh, you grasp the concept of homology. Um, in other words, parallel development of, say, limbs 
between uh, mammals, uh, birds, reptiles, fishes, and so forth. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, in other words, uh, a kind of uh, um, convergent evolution, one could say. Uh, in, so he could definitely be viewed as a, a forerunner of that. Uh, but I, uh, if he had to see something like the tree of life concept, he would certainly be impressed by it. Although I agree with what you wrote in Evolution 2.0, that in view of the adaptive mechanisms of horizontal gene transfer and so forth, should rather be seen as a bush of life rather than a web of life with a, a vast web of interconnections on all levels instead of uh, singular inheritance being traced back to uh, ancestors. So what was the first thread that you started pulling on? Like there had to been some point where you said, oh my goodness, like there's a whole world of alternative thinking about evolution that I had never been exposed to. What did you stumble upon? The first piece that I can recall that I came across was the article by Michael Denton and some of his colleagues at the time working in New Zealand, I think, on the protein folds as an example of uh, a platonic uh, regularity or lawfulness uh, in the biochemical uh, realm. Uh, and then also uh, the work of Michael Denton, uh, and early on, uh, the work of uh, Lev Berg, I think it was Denton uh, in his book, uh, Nature's Destiny, who made a reference to Lev Berg. And that encouraged me to obtain that work by Berg, uh, which was, a, was an enormous inspiration to me to, to keep uh, digging and uh, relating me to others. Well, so in ancient mathematics, you have things like the Fibonacci sequence and Fibonacci spirals. If anybody's ever seen the little grid where it shows a Nautilus shell or a, mm. uh, you know, something like that. And then, it, you know, in a, in a grid with expanding numbers going outward, you recognized that these mathematical forms were all over the place in biology. And you've got some really great chapters where you point out that these similar forms, these similarities appear again and again and again and again and again in species that the Darwinian tree of life does not connect together at all. That's right. Can you talk, what, what were some of the most interesting things that you found that really surprised you? In connection with a, a Fibonacci sequence, um, there's the phenomenon of... Um, Philotaxis, uh, or the arrangement of leaves on the stem of a plant, from the Greek words, of course, philos meaning leaf, and taxis meaning rank or order. And um, they occur in numerous instances in the, those re, uh, uh, relations of the Fibonacci sequence, the uh, uh, 5, 8, 13, uh, and 17, and so forth, uh, of which several examples are given in, um, in the book. And what is interesting is that uh, I think it was Da Vinci, who observed that they are not only an instance of mathematical regularity, uh, but they also optimize the access of the plant to dew and sunlight. Uh, so there's a, a functional reason for them as well, which I again see as a, a brilliant interaction between the metaphysical and the physical. There's a phrase that you use in your book, evolution runs on rails. Could you unpack what you mean by that and what you discovered. According to the Darwinian theory, based as it is on the concept of completely random uh, variations arising, uh, uh, and then through a process of, of trial and error, as it were, a natural selection then weeds out uh, those which are detrimental and uh, preserves those which are beneficial to the organism, that would 
mean that as time goes by, there should be a greater and greater variety of forms all around us uh, in, in all of the parts of the living kingdoms, uh, plants and animals and microorganisms. So in time, uh, uh, more and more uh, different phenotypes should become established. But we don't see that in either the, the, the world that we are living in or in the fossil record. Instead, we find that evolution seems to follow certain pathways, restricted numbers of pathways, uh, for which the reasons, of course, are uh, biochemical uh, and physical, uh, among others. So as, as Simon Conway Morris uh, puts it, um, combination, uh, evolution keeps uh, steering certain uh, navigated routes. Uh, he uses the analogy of uh, albatross birds in the Pacific Ocean, uh, navigating across vast distances to small islands. And uh, eventually they all reach the same island, regardless which point they come from. And evolution also seems to follow these uh, pathways uh, much more limited than one would expect from the concept of random variations. And that, is, uh, that ties in intimately with the notion of uh, constraints on variation. Uh, the fact that there are physical and biochemical constraints on variation, which only allows there for, for certain pathways to occur and not an infinite variety of pathways. So that is quite a, a powerful uh, counter, I think, to the Darwinian argument of infinite uh, variability. And as time goes on, just more and more uh, forms appearing of all shapes and sizes, which we don't see. We find the opposite. We find convergence, uh, forms uh, converging in similar shapes, uh, bodily shapes and functions and so forth in different parts of the world. What do you say to the person who says, oh, well, there's no preloaded... Uh formula going on here, that's just the only version that natural selection was able to select. So, of course, they're similar because there's only so many ways it can happen. What would you say to that person? No, the constraints are also um, on the cellular level, uh, as uh, Michael Denton and other scientists have shown, which I discuss in the uh, section um, Limits on Transformation. Uh, so it is not purely a case of natural selection, uh, uh, choosing, as it were, those pathways. Uh, as a matter of fact, selection cannot create new forms. That is, I think, pretty well established by, by any number of scientists by now. It can only act on, on what, is, what, what has been given, on material that has been provided to it, which mm -hmm. again is the opposite of what the Darwinists uh, claim, that given enough time, natural selection can produce virtually anything from anything. Well, it's become this very weird ironically mystical thing in and of itself where, you know, I always like to say natural selection is an outcome, not an explanation. When you say, well, natural selection, that's like saying, you know, they get to the world series through the playoffs. Like, well, yes, there, there were playoffs in, in basketball and baseball and whatever soccer, but that doesn't tell you anything about the strategy that, the team used to win the game, right? It just mm -hmm. tells you that they won it, right? Mm -hmm. So you haven't actually explained anything. Um, there's a there's a uh, little passage in your book that, that jumped out at me. And uh, you talked about a guy named Otto Schindewolf who identified three phases in the evolutionary process. The first involves rapid establishment of new forms. The slower second phase entails elaboration and diversification of the newly established forms. 
The third phase is characterized by gigantism and over-specialization and not surprisingly ends with extinction. Well, what I thought was interesting about that is that is true in business. You see any kind of human organization go through these same three phases, right? It's like like a big company, they get extremely profitable and they start doing this one thing, but then all of a sudden it breaks like what happened with the taxi industry and Uber and the, and the ride sharing companies. Right. Um, uh, as far as I can tell, the taxi guys were extremely profitable running their little monopoly for a really long time. And then all of a sudden they couldn't change anymore. Like they're in real, the ones that are still left are in real serious trouble now. Right. And so you have these patterns repeating at literally every level Mm. of organization, right? From cells all the way to corporations that are made up of thousands and thousands of people. So you have these patterns happening over and over again, and they are top down patterns of causation, not merely uh, purely material patterns. And so then you, could you talk maybe a little bit more about convergence? I'm not sure everybody's going to be familiar with that term. Could you explain Simon Conway Morris and his, uh, the many, many examples of this that are out there? Uh, yes, it's the convergence is the phenomenon that unrelated life forms often display remarkable similarities in uh, structure and in uh, behavior in different parts of the world. Uh, one of my favorite examples is actually a little predator that we have in Africa called the honey badger, uh, known locally as the rattle, an incredibly tough and ferocious, like a mini bear. And mm. it's uh, in the northern hemisphere, one finds the wolverine, which I'm, I think you might be more familiar with than me. In the far northern forests, as far as I know, of, of uh, Canada and Siberia and so forth. And then in Australia, we find the Tasmanian devil. Again, uh, a small, uh, ferocious uh, predator. In all those cases, um, they are sturdily built with fairly short legs, with long claws, immensely powerful jaws, and uh, a large teeth, uh, canine uh, teeth, uh, which gives them an advantage over animals several times their size uh, when it comes to capturing prey and also defending themselves. So there you have examples from three different continents. Um, all three are, well, they are part of the, the family uh, of, of carnivores, uh, well, at least two of them are the, the other one being a marsupial, uh, but none of them uh, closely related, uh, probably uh, separated by many millions of years of, of development. Just to clarify, so you're saying there aren't any evolutionary biologists that think that these three animals are related? No, no. no they belong to widely different uh, families, at least. Uh, and in the case of the, uh, the Tasmanian devil, uh, even a completely uh, different order. So they have adapted, uh, they have evolved or developed, which actually comes down to the same meaning, to uh, fairly similar, in some ways similar environments, uh, which can be quite hostile. Wolverine has to cope, of course, with the extremes of the northern winter. Uh, the honey badger has to cope with uh, uh, the, the southern uh, summers, uh, grassland and semi-deserts where they live. Um, so uh, it's... Uh, of course, the, the most famous example is that of the, the parallels between the marsupial animals in Australia and their placental uh, counterparts. 
in South America and Africa, for example. So in Australia, you have uh, kangaroos and wallabies playing exactly the same ecological role as that played by antelopes in Africa, from very large to very small, being the dominant herbivore uh, in, in those particular areas. And so if you draw this out on a tree, you see, okay, so this, these very similar patterns emerge completely independently on this tree, on this tree, on this tree. Now, a creationist would say, well, yeah, so God made all of them, and he just used a common design. Now, why did you not end up accepting that kind of view? I think the living kingdoms are too complex in, in various levels of the word in there, uh, not only physically, but in terms of, of behavior and instincts and so forth, uh, for God to have actually intervened on every single occasion. Uh, when a new life form had to be uh, established, which is, of course, what natural creationism entails. Um, it makes far more sense for me to uh, accept that there are certain laws uh, according to which life unfolds on Earth, which ultimately can be uh, traced back to the Creator in any uh, event, than to imagine that God would uh, occupy himself with personally creating every single species of plant and animal that has ever existed. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I approach that question looking at it from the point of view that life that can re-engineer itself is much, much more impressive than, hmm. hey, good to meet you. Let's talk again sometime, okay? Thank you. Thank you very much, Betty. And if you're ever in the States, you ever come through Chicago, please give me a shout. Oh, yes. Yes. Life that requires constant intervention. In the entrepreneur and business world, we have this idea that you know, the reason we respect Ray Kroc was he created a business system where he could make an instruction manual and a 16-year-old could go get a job and be dunking french fries this afternoon with little or no training. And the point is, is that Ray Kroc doesn't have to go to all of those McDonald's restaurants and train all these kids, right? That the thing runs itself. Mm. I mean, if you want to sell a company for a lot of money, and I got a lot of friends that do this kind of thing, build a company that will run itself. The more intervention it needs from the genius who created it, the less valuable it is, right? Well, and companies are just an extension of biology it's how we all feed ourselves, right? It's how we make money so that we can go buy groceries and eat and, and survive, right? So business is, is really an extension of biology. I just thought personally, it was much more impressive to investigate the mechanisms. So like we have only the crudest idea of how a honey badger and a wolverine and a Tasmanian devil all end up with very similar claws and very similar body structure and all that. Like, sure, we can make up a story about how that happened. But if you were going to, if an engineer was going to reproduce that, or you're going to build a model in a computer software, you were actually going to have it all work itself out. It would require a tremendous level of engineering in order to do that. Right. So it won't do to just, 
tell ourselves a story, but there's so much to study here, right? Like there's so much more to learn. So when you get to the end of your book, sorry, um, I, sorry Perry, could I just quickly yeah. add, please, to, to continuing the same argument that yeah. if one uh, a container that God created that every species of animal and plant and microbe even that has ever existed over the past 3.5 billion years, according to the fossil record, given the fact that around 90% of them have become extinct in the meantime, uh, why on earth would God create life forms only so, only so that they could become extinct again? Surely that doesn't make sense either. Well, exactly, right? And so it also makes more sense to me to understand this as a constantly unfolding process, which of course is what the Greeks were originally talking about. This is the whole idea. Thor Heyerdahl of Kontikifein, the famous explorer, who said that there are two kinds of researcher. Tell me his name, sorry. Uh, Thor Heyerdahl, it's H-E-Y-E-R-E-I-H-L. The main okay. thing, that it was possible, in fact, to sail with, uh, with fairly primitive boats across the Pacific uh, in uh, early historical times and so forth. Um, and he said that there are two kinds of researchers. There are those who dig deep and unearth material previously unknown. And then there are those who take that unearthed material and relate it to each other. And I've always tried mm-hmm. to be the, the second type. So I don't, uh-huh. I don't view myself as an original thinker or anything like that. I try to... Uh, perhaps make sense out of what other people have already discovered. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, well, I think that's what you've done here. And I, I think it's great. Um, and I, I was also, I appreciated the number of references to my work that you had here. That was very encouraging. Yes. I was uh, thrilled when I first uh, came across your book and my uh, mentor or my promoter for the doctorate uh, also immediately ordered a copy for himself when I uh, told him about it, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm sure he has made known in, in South Africa in the meantime, um, because it's again thrown light on, on quite a wide range of issues. And the fact that it comes from your engineering background, of course, makes it perhaps even the more valuable. Well, I just, I really found just a ton of, of it was like, there was this whole world of engineering and there was this whole world of biology and they were hardly talking to each other at all. But if you, if you brought them together, you could connect all of these threads between them and like, wow, you know, how impoverished the world has been for not knowing about this. Mm -hmm. Like, and especially now with we've got, we've got gene editing uh, in full force now. Like I just, read yesterday an article allegedly a Chinese scientist has modified the DNA of baby twins that are now born. Right. Um, and the fact that we're, we're rushing pell-mell into artificial intelligence and we have Siri and Alexa and voice recognition and all this kind of stuff. If we don't tie these fields together, we're going to make some terrible mistakes. Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. As the 20th century showed abundantly with certain historical events, when, when things are too narrowly understood or taken to extremes in itself, uh, we've, we've seen what can happen. And I'm afraid it's still happening. Because as yeah. we know, the one thing that humans don't learn from history is to learn from history. <laughs> exactly. Sadly, so. Well, I get this friend... 
she grew up in Northern Ireland. She's about 35. And so she was coming into her teen years when, when they were trying to reach the peace agreements in Belfast and her entire world was made up of what you can't talk about Mm. because the tensions were so great. And so everybody just walked on eggshells. And I think that that is exactly where academia is with Darwinian evolution right now. Mm. Um, there for literally for four generations of scientists have been prohibited from thinking certain things. Mm. And I would say just in the last two or three years, the, the handcuffs have started to come off and everybody's trying to figure out. So what can I get away with saying now? Because the old school Darwinists won't defend their views anymore. I don't know. Have you have you picked up on this? Um, well, I'm sure that the usual suspects like uh, uh, Dawkins and Coyne and so on will continue to defend the, the, uh, the old positions. Uh, but I'll be very happy if there's a, a paradigm shift coming, uh, which I see Evolution 2.0, of course, as being a major contributor to. Well, you know, it's, it's really already here. Um, there's a... There's a video on my YouTube channel where I interviewed Dennis Noble, and I think you would really like his work. And um, he, so he's a very respected scientist in the UK. Mm. I mean, he has a commander of the British Empire medal from Queen Elizabeth, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society, and he organized an evolution conference at the Royal Society two years ago. And he challenged, he said, hey, all, all the old, Neo-Darwinism guys, I'll debate any of you. Come on, let's have a debate. And they, they won't do it. I know for a fact that they have all turned down invitations by various promoters to debate him. Um, and, and when I was at the Royal Society meeting two years ago, I felt like Forrest Gump because I had never seen Neo-Darwinists backpedaling before. <laughs> but they were backpedaling there. Um, it was really remarkable. And so it, it doesn't like, there hasn't been a big public showdown. And so people assume that neo-Darwinism holds the same place that it always did, but it's really more like the Berlin wall where the reason that it came down was the guards had vacated their posts and probably intentionally. Mm. as far as I, from what I hear. Mm. Quite possible. So anyway, we live in interesting times, man. Yes. On the, uh, on the EES uh, website, one can also see a wide variety of, of research projects uh, that they're working on. And yes. Material, material that get, gets published in, in uh, uh, respected uh, journals and so forth. So um, that paradigm shift does seem to be underway. Absolutely. It's high time for such a paradigm shift. It is. It's long overdue. So, so maybe you could just wrap up by explaining the Greek. Um, there's a sentence here 
maybe you can conclude by fleshing this idea out a little bit. Um, a directed progression from non-dimensional numbers through one-dimensional lines and two-dimensional planes into three-dimensional bodies. And then eventually, you know, we're talking about souls and can, can you kind of uh, maybe just kind of put a cherry on top of here's what the Greeks were talking about 2,500 years ago. And here's how we see this under the microscope today. Um, I think it's in the opening chapter on uh, the metaphysical understanding of evolution that I quote a, a writing by your countryman, James Katzinger, um, in terms of which the evolutionary process could be understood as God uh, manifesting himself or itself uh, through uh, the, the mechanisms of uh, heredity and so forth, also using the, the point, uh, the mathematical or geometrical point, the starting uh, position, uh, the point then uh, uh, unfolding, one could say, uh, into the line, uh, the line into the plane, uh, the plane into the three-dimensional body. And then when our life becomes added to it, first in the form of plants, uh, but being attached to one place, there's not, it's not possible for sensation to take root, and therefore animal life had to develop, uh, culminating in the, the human form, which includes all of those, plus the capacity for, uh, for reason. And I find that quite an elegant explanation of the, the classical Pythagorean and Platonic cosmology combined with uh, evolutionary processes. Hey, good to meet you. Let's talk again sometime, okay? Thank you. Thank you very much, Perry. And if you're ever in the States, you ever come through Chicago, please give me a shout. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you very much, Perry. And all the, best with, your, all the best with your ongoing project of Evolution 2.0, which I think is one of the most exciting scientific developments in a long time. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>